The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about the week ahead in markets. My guest is Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, who oversees our markets coverage. This is a hugely busy week in the financial markets. All eyes are on the Russian war in Ukraine, the impact of sanctions on Russia, and the possible implications of removing some Russian banks from the SWIFT bank messaging system. Plus, here in America, President Biden will deliver the State of the Union address on Tuesday. Fed Chair Jerome Powell will give Congress a policy update on Wednesday and Thursday, and Friday, for good measure, we'll get the February jobs report. My head is spinning, Ben. How about you? It's incredible, and it uh, almost ruined my vacation too, Lauren. Right. You were out last week. You missed I a was. very big week in the markets and and in the world, although I'm sure you were keeping track. Yeah, well, with a, uh, a wife who is from a former Soviet bloc uh, country, how could I not? How could you not? That is, it must be very upsetting for her, for all of us. Yeah. But let's look back at the markets. I forgot to mention that the West has also sanctioned Russia's central bank. And some people are starting to talk and write about a Lehman moment as bills don't get paid and the global financial system jams up. So far, the damage seems confirmed, confined excuse me, mostly to Russia, where the ruble has plunged. But what are the impact of sanctions broadly? And what do you make of the Lehman comparisons? Well, I, I would say that, and, you know, initially this is the impact is largely being felt uh, uh, in Russia through through the ruble. Um, there really hasn't uh, been anything like this that I can remember where, you know, more than the, the swift um, uh, blocking for some of the banks, just this uh, uh, blocking of trading with the uh, Russian Central Bank is really a, a first for me. And I think we're going to see how this plays out there. Have been, the, the, the strategists out there at the, uh, the big investment banks are certainly uh, weighing in on this um, and trying to figure out what it means. But the, one of the problems uh, for, for Russia specifically is that, you know, normally in this kind of environment with their currency uh, tumbling, they'd come in and support, support it by uh, buying rubles. Um, they, they'd sell their foreign currency reserves and they'd buy their, their own currency. Um, but a lot of their reserves are actually held in um, either European or U.S. banks. And right now they don't have access to those. Um, we, it we is just, a mess. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Um, and, you know, it's the, the implications of this are, are, are pretty enormous. Um Let's just focus on Russia and, and the ruble for the, for the moment. Um, you know, they, they there just isn't a lot of room for them to be. They have gold and they can go to China, but th this isn't the kind of stuff that is going to easily be converted in, into currency that could be then sold to um, support the ruble. Though the ruble has bounced, it's off its its worst uh, levels. Um, the central bank was forced to more than double its uh, interest rates up to twenty percent. I saw that this morning. 
um, and and there, there will probably be other steps necessary to uh, get the ruble to stabilize. I think last I looked, it was down about 18 percent. Um, and uh, I think the bigger question that uh, is, is going to be asked after this is that uh, Europe, uh, the euro and the dollar, both, um, you know, the dollar in particular have been reserve currency. It's been what uh, countries can put their savings into and they can then, you know, when they need to, they can sell dollars to buy their currencies to support them to do whatever they need to. Um, and I, I think it does raise an interesting question. This has also been raised by uh, people on Wall Street is, um, is the U.S. making that impossible for countries by blocking the central bank from from using uh, its dollar reserves? Um, is, is this one more thing on the um, on the way to the end of the dollar as a reserve currency? Of course, the Europe is doing the same thing, so the, the euro is not going to be the reserve currency either. But uh, you wonder what is there going to be reserve currency, or do we have to go back to a world where? There is more focus on things like uh, gold or on your trading partners or whatever it may be. Well, it's one of the fallouts of what's happened. Yep. But we're using many tools today short of military intervention to deal with the conflict. Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty wild. Um, and, and going to your question about the, the Lehman moment, um, there are some that are really uh, worried about it. Um, one strategist, Zoltan, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Zoltan Pozar over at uh, Credit Suisse, um, he was writing about this yesterday and, and got up a lot of attention. He basically is arguing that when you jam the flows, and I'm quoting from him now, uh, by making banks unable to receive and send payments, you have a problem. And this is what happened in with Lehman, um, when you know it wasn't allowed to, uh, money wasn't being sent out. Nobody wanted to send money to, to the bank. He's worried that you're setting up a similar situation now because you can't just block if they're blocked from paying. Um, it means that people that financial institutions on on this side are blocked from receiving and vice versa. And we don't know where the linkages are. And it's those linkages that could cause larger problems within the financial system. For now, though, we're not seeing um, many signs of that kind of um, uh, that, that kind of, um, I guess, cross contamination um, going on in the financial system. Um, and that's probably, I think, one one of the reasons that the market has rebounded off its worst levels this morning. I think the Nasdaq was even up the last time I peaked. Um, it, is that we're not seeing um, any larger ramifications from these moves, which really are in many ways unprecedented. You know, I think it'll be many, many years before people stop referring to Lehman moments whenever there's a hint of the financial system quaking. Yes, it's probably true. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Though he makes, a, I mean, he was making an interesting point is just that um, memory, he uh, uh, he says on Wall Street is cyclical. And it's very true. You get so much turnover there that uh, you have, um, that you get people come on that have, have didn't experience it. Um, you know, I've exp I experienced the dot-com bust and I experienced Lehman. Um, then I've experienced uh, the the pandemic. Uh, then I've experienced the crash of '87. So there exactly. you go. Exactly, <laughs> and, and so we have these long memories, but a lot of people don't have them. That for for many employees on Wall Street, even even now, you know, 2008 is far away. 2009 is far away. Um, and you know, you, you we have to relearn all these things. And so that's why you know, if it's not all the Lehman moment, they'll come up with another name. Well, it's just a reminder, effectively, that unintended consequences can happen. Very much so.
and that's what it's really all about. So the war in Ukraine is also impacting the commodities market. Oil prices were almost 100 a barrel earlier today. Last I took a peak, oil was trading around 95. And the U.S. shale producers and the Saudis could all pump a bit more, but it's not happening yet, and it may not be enough to bring prices down. What is the long-term outlook for energy prices? And while you're at it, feel free to comment on agricultural commodities since Ukraine produces so many. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that the the risk for, well, let me put it into a risk reward kind of um, framework. Fair I think enough. That's, that makes more sense. Um, I was reading a note out of uh, Gavacal this morning, and they were, were saying that, you know, for both, and this is for both energy and farm commodities, that, you know, despite the big move here, it actually makes sense from a risk reward kind of framework to be buying both. Because um, they say, you know, what if peace breaks out tomorrow? What, what happens? So energy prices, they're going to fall 10%. But let's say it gets worse. The war continues. Let's say pipelines between um, the, between U um, Russia and uh, Europe. Um, and those, remember, energy price, energy has been carved out of the sanctions. So the energy markets are still flowing. But what happens if those pipelines get blown up? Or what if Russia decides, you know what, we're just going to cut off the flow. Um, you know, it's, it's, Europe is certainly not ready for that. Um, and so you can see prices really shoot higher. Um, you know, their term was go parabolic, um, but it's just it's basically go straight up. Um, and so they see the the risk reward being pretty um, pretty good in favor of these commodities here, even if you you know as long as you can stomach that downside of something like ten percent. Um, and and Citigroup is also weighing in, and they're trying to look at the the long term versus the the short term um, here. Um, you know they also see that the the, the short term risk is higher, um, and but they also are looking and seeing that perhaps you get um, a deal done with Iran that allows their oil to start coming and that perhaps OPEC plus and other non-OPEC companies, countries, I mean, um, start uh, pumping more oil. And so this might take a while, but by the end of the year, um, you could see that um, that there has been enough supply coming on um, that it actually causes prices to come down. So uh, city is actually calling for um, lower oil prices by the end of uh, December of, uh, of this year. They could go a lot higher, though, before they come down. They definitely can. Yeah, that's, that's the issue here. And higher oil prices certainly do not help the inflation outlook. The Fed is about to tackle inflation with a series of interest rate hikes, but the war has complicated the timing and I think the magnitude of those hikes. What's the current thinking on Wall Street about what the Fed's going to do? Well, it wasn't that long ago where it seemed like the uh, and I, I think the uh, the chances of a uh, half point uh, rate hike were uh, about 90 percent. Um, now it's just a 13 percent chance, um, the latest CME numbers um, and still an 86 percent chance of a 25 basis point uh, rate hike. Um, and, and I'll be watching those really to see if they start to come down at all as uh, if the uh, the Ukraine-Russia uh, war continues um, to, to drag on. Um, I mean, I think for the Fed, it really does complicate what it wants to do. Um, perhaps not the rate hikes, perhaps it goes a little more slowly now. But one of the things that's, you know, with the, uh, 
with the demand for dollars because of these moves on SWIFT and the Russian Central Bank, you know, the, the Fed might have to roll out its, um, its swap lines again. And that means that it could actually be increasing its balance sheet <laughs> at a time when everybody is saying um, that it should be decreasing and it should be letting it shrink. And so this is just, I mean, it, it's, it's just making things very complicated, very weird. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see really what uh, Powell has to say um, in his testimony this week, but also in that run-up uh, to the uh, March meeting. You know, what is the Fed really going to do? How does it try to balance, um, you know, the, the the inflation that's here because of too much consumer demand, but also there's this inflation here that is really has nothing to do with the consumer, um, and that's where the problem could be. It's really a puzzle for the Fed. I would love to be a fly on the wall in their deliberations. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Uh, I mean, it's, it's complicated in a way that uh, is very different from, I think, any, uh, what any of us are used to right now. And and from anything Jay Powell thought he'd have to deal with, no doubt. That's for when sure. He was, when he was reappointed. So if, if you thought inflation was bad, now people are starting to talk about stagflation. And that's the deadly combination of high inflation and no economic growth. Do you think that's a realistic conversation at this point? Is there anything to it that we should begin to worry about? Um, I think that I think it has to be taken seriously. Um, you know, I, I wasn't taking it seriously when growth was still high, when we saw, you know, oil prices um, had been pulling back, we were getting through, um, through COVID. It's like, it just seemed like things were going to be okay. Um, and that uh, inflation maybe would take a little while to get under control, but it could be done. Um, the the war complicates uh, things um, in, in ways that I don't think. I mean, I wasn't considering two months ago. You know, when we no. were writing our uh, um, previews for this for this year. I mean, that that was not one of the scenarios I was considering. But when you look at uh, what's happening now, you have to. Um, there was uh, a note out of um, from T.S. Lombard uh, today that was looking at uh, the oil, the rise in oil prices. And right now it has almost nothing to do with demand. It's simply the, the lack of supply and concerns about a lack of supply. Um, and that's that's the part where you end up with, uh, you know, slower growth. Um, where, it's, where it's not demand that's driving things. If demand is driving the um, the price of oil, then it's usually okay because, uh, you know, companies are doing it because they're making the money that can allow them to afford it. But if it's going up without that demand, if economic growth is slowing and oil prices are rising, it leads to slower growth. And that's where you run into to really big problems um, and, uh, and into a 70s style stagflation. Um, and I, I was someone who really did not uh, buy that argument when it was being made, let's say, last year. But I also never counted on a, uh, a, a war like we're seeing in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine and the response uh, that uh, um, the United States and Europe have and other parts of the world have had to it. Right. Japan, too. Let's not forget. So it's one big mess. I want to move on, though, to something a little less disturbing, and that is this week's earnings reports. It's a big week for retail earnings that will give us some sort of window into consumer behavior. And before we talk about them, though, I want to remind listeners that we'll take questions at the end of the call. So please type them in for us. So, Ben, let's start with the department stores. I feel like we're a million miles from Russia now, but Kohl's <laughs> and Nordstrom are reporting earnings this week for their fiscal fourth quarters. 
what's the expectation? Well, both both these um, um, department stores have their own little interesting things going on with them. Uh, Kohl's, uh, which is reporting on Tuesday, um, they're on the receiving end of a takeover bid, a bid to go private um, that's right. for right. for sixty four dollars. Um, and they, um, you know, they're expected to have a, a profit of about $2.11, which would be down a little bit from last year at the same time, uh, same quarter was $2.22. Um, but there's a good chance, according to UBS, that they offer guidance that is kind of, uh, in a range of 660 to 7.30 a share. And that would be more than most people expect, they think. Um, and that would help uh, push up the stock because it might get, um, it might for a case you know, research who's the one with the bid out there to either put in a higher, a higher bid for the company, or it could get more buyers into the mix. Um, and, and so that's really, um, I think what people are going to be focusing on is, you know, what do these numbers look like? How, um, how does this set up? Does it make Kohl's uh, be able to make an argument? Hey, we're, we're worth more than this. And you know what? Kohl's also has an investor day coming on March 7th, where it's going to be talking about uh, its business and partially trying to make the case for why it deserves to stay as a standalone. So I think that's going to be the real interesting focus um, there. Um, so quick question before you go yeah. on to Nordstrom. The um, the takeover offer is for $64 a share. Kohl's is trading today for $55.49. Yep. What does that gap tell you in the, well, the current price and bid? Right now it tells me that uh, the, the bid isn't, I mean, isn't being taken too seriously. Uh, Kohl's has really pushed back on it. Um, it would prefer to stay a standalone company, uh, as management would. Um, and so I think it says that the, the market um, is, isn't uh, too optimistic about the, the chances that it could get taken over. Though I think it is one reason. You look at the stock, it's up 15% uh, this year. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that it is doing so well. Um, it might not be, you know, the street might not be taking it completely seriously, but they're not rejecting it out of hand either. Right. Um, and well, it tells you there's more value in Kohl's than, than the stock revealed at the beginning of the year. That, that's for sure. You know, it's either going to, you know, it'll, it'll figure it out one way or the other, I think, is what it comes down to. Though I should say um, that uh, the folks at UBS, they still think it's a sell. Um, you know, they think that the, the macro conditions aren't good for uh, Kohl's uh, specifically in retail. It's going to be tough as well with higher prices and whatnot. And they also think that it might be hard for um, a, a company, for someone to finance um, a takeover uh, of, of Kohl's. So you might get this pop in the stock, but the takeover itself could run into trouble. Um, yes. That's further down the line. They say that's uh, you know towards the end of this year and into early next year. So I'm going to guess that Acacia Research, which has made the takeover bid, is not a client <laughs> of the bank. I would guess. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Nordstrom. What's the outlook there? Well, they're an interesting one because they were the crown jewel of department stores, uh, or, or at least seemed to be on Wall Street. You know, Wall Street loved this stock. Um, it didn't do very well. Uh, Barron's recommended a few times, and most of the time it didn't work out so well. Um, but there was this belief that they had, um, you know, better online presence. They also had Nordstrom Rack, which was kind of an off-price retailer within um, Nordstrom proper, and that these things were um, really good for uh, for Nordstrom long term. Um, but it, uh, it it's become a sort of 
I, I think people are coming around to the notion that number one, BRAC isn't a great thing right now, um, simply because, you know, for that kind of off price to do well, you need to have a lot of stuff that hasn't sold that then can go into the uh, off price business. And that uh, probably isn't happening now with all these shortages. Um, and um, that's also going to uh, pressure some of their margins. Um, it just simply be right, and you're it's also the margin, inventory. Right. And you also have the then the margin pressures that come from freight costs and things like that. Um, and so one of the things that uh, William, uh, William Blair analyst was noting is that, you know, Nordstrom has always had a premium to the other department stores. Um, it trades at 10.4 times earnings right now. Macy's trades at 6.1 and Kohl's at 8.6. And this is 12 month forward earnings. This um, is dirt cheap. Well, but Macy's and Kohl's are even cheaper. And yes. they think that uh, that Nordstrom is actually and, and Macy's and well, eventually its valuation is going to have to come in line with the rest of the group um, that it, it can't uh, it, it won't have this premium uh, valuation any longer. We'll see what happens. That's pretty interesting. I it, I didn't realize the stocks were quite that cheap. Let's yeah, look they're, at they're over, cheap. the grocer. What's expected sure. there? Um, well, JP Morgan was looking at it and was saying that there's actually a lot of worry on the buy side. Um, they're worried that consumers are um, buying cheaper stuff. They're going for the, you know, the old generics versus the uh, the brand names. Um, as uh, prices go up, they're worried about government stimulus fading and they're worried about prices just continuing to rise. But uh, the, the analysts at JP Morgan say that uh, so far um, it hasn't impacted sales at all. Sales are generally good. Um, and uh, the the price increases haven't really had any impact on, on volume, um, and there isn't really much price competition between uh, grocers either. Um, and so that really um, sets Kroger up for a pretty decent quarter, um, at least versus the uh, the consensus. Um, they are, um, you know, they're neutral on the stock. J.P. Morgan is. They have a neutral rating, but they they say that they lean constructive. But I, th I think that's a good um, way to put it. I mean, grocery stores in this kind of environment are still fairly defensive. Um, and people are still going out and buying their groceries. We're all complaining about how much we're paying for avocados and whatnot. Oh, my goodness. We yeah, certainly it's, are. It's, it's nuts. But um, for now, at least it seems like people are continuing to shop there. And as long as that's the case, Kroger should be OK. Well, we have to eat no matter the prices. That is the truth. So tell me about Zoom Video, which is also reporting this yeah. week. Zoom, it's like, uh, it's amazing to watch uh, these stocks that were such, um, were so popular um, during the during the pandemic and how they've really fallen from grace. Um, you know, Zoom is down 32% just this year, um, which is amazing. Wow. Um, and, you know, you can cite business issues and benchmarks. And, um, Matthew Harrigan does. You know, he says, like, people are worried about Microsoft's team essentials, um, that that's going to hurt Zoom's uh, small business appeal, um, saying that uh, people are worried about Zoom's ability to keep customers as the lockdown goes away, uh, the lockdowns go away and people return to the office, and that they're worried about people um, um converting from, uh, you know, free non-paying customers to paying a customer, to paying customers. Um, but I think really what's going on here is that investors just don't want to pay 
an enormous valuation premium for stocks where the growth is well out into the future. So Harrigan does his math and he says based on, you know, 2035 numbers, the stock would be worth $234. Um, but based on its current price, um, it's, uh, you know, the, the market's really, and that's at around 132-ish and change right now, the market's really only willing to pay out to about 2025. Um, and I think that's really what's going on, not just with Zoom, but with so many um, other of these expensive, um, formerly high-flying growth companies is that people are just not willing to look out, to, uh, you know, more than a decade to, to the future at this point. You know, they want something that's a little more certain, and that's not these stocks, especially when you have those kind of business issues in the background on them. So I, I think the expectations here are pretty low. Um, you know, you might get a bounce just if they, you know, a relief bounce, because the stock's been going pretty much straight down. You might get a relief bounce um, if earnings come in better than expected, but it until the macro environment changes, until something else uh, gets investors to really convince that there is a long-term growth in here, that it's going to be tough on these kinds of stocks. I think it's hard to look out past 2022 when you consider what's happened <laughs> just in the past two weeks. Yeah, I was trying to look out into the summer and thinking, can I actually plan right. a vacation right now? All right, you beat me there. That's <laughs> true. Let's move on to talk about housing for a moment. We're going to get some reports on construction spending. This week, I understand Bank of America recently upgraded Toll Brothers and Pulte. What's behind that upgrade and what's the outlook for housing? And then we'll go to some listener questions. Well, I, th I think the outlook for housing is still very mixed. The numbers haven't been great. Um, you know, when we get these construction numbers, they're, they're supposed to have dropped 0.4%. Uh, um, and it, it's... You know, it, it, it's not the uh, it's not a market where people are very excited after having seen these big run ups in prices and we're seeing some, you know, slowing sales, slowing building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Bank of America this morning upgraded Toll Brothers and Pulte and they like housing stocks generally. And it's basically because they feel like the stocks have gotten beaten up so much um, that the risk reward is really in their favor right now. The fundamentals, they say, are still strong. Um, the, uh, you know, home prices have gone up, but rent prices are now going up too. And so the, um, the affordability might not be as bad as, as it seems. Um, and, um, at the same time, valuations are fairly low and everybody hates these things. Um, they also argue that, uh, building stocks, uh, are cheaper than they look, um, that, uh, the, the book values that these, uh, um, that the companies carry actually doesn't reflect the, uh, the price appreciation of the land that they own. Um, and so they think that this is a great time to be getting into stocks like Toll Brothers and Pulte, um, which I think is interesting. I always like these kind of, um, uh, upgrades that come when an analyst has been right. Um, they, they downgrade at the, at the right time, and now they're looking at weakness and they're upgrading. Um, much That's prefer that to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, it's much better than uh, the ones that are doing the opposite, that you see the stock drop 20% and then it gets downgraded. Um, so I, this one caught my attention. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. So let me go to a couple of questions. We, we've had a couple of questions asking why the market hasn't sold off. Um, given the Ukraine situation. And do you have any thoughts about that? Of course, it has been volatile, but right. it was majorly on Friday. Right. And and I think that that's a lot of what's going on is that we have to remember that the market has, has fallen a lot. Um, we did have the, uh, the NASDAQ drop into a bear market um, ever so briefly. Um, it didn't close there. 
Um, but it was down more than 20% at one point. Um, and the other rest of the market is, uh, you know, at least in a, in a correction, if not worse. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot priced, a lot of bad news priced into the market right now. One of the things to, and, and so when you get the actual event, um, then you, that's when the market starts to try to adjust around um around the news. And so that's why I think why we saw the the rebound last week, because it really did look like it was going to be your typical, you know, uh, in, in this case, it was sell the rumor, uh, buy the news, um, where people were selling into the start of war. Um, it started, and then the market snapped back. Um, and then to, today, we're seeing that it's going to be uh, more complicated, perhaps uh, more drawn out. I think people really did assume that uh, Russia would just go right through, it'd be over quickly, and we get back, uh, you know, back on with things. We could ignore it, um, and and the Ukrainians aren't letting us. Um, you know, they they fought back uh, much harder than before, and so the market, I think, is going to until this ends. Um, there, or I'm going to put ends in quotations. Um, you know, we're going to continue to be sort of whipsawed by headlines. Um, you know, there will be new things that happen, and we're not going to be sure if the markets will be able to take them and we'll get kind of action we did today where the market was down a lot and now it's not down very much at all or part of it is even up. Um, so I think that's what's going on is for now it's not recessionary, which is always the big thing that uh, causes bear markets. And we've priced in a, a, um, a decent amount of bad news already. That, sorry, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, but you have to remember the weeks that preceded the the outbreak of war as you know the market sold off steadily throughout throughout that time so steve asks an interesting question do you think the stock market is more concerned about the invasion of ukraine or how much the fed will raise interest rates um i think on friday it would have said interest rates um (laughs) I i think it probably still is um and and i do think that uh the, the Fed is going to have to calibrate this really well. Um, we don't know how the uh, what's going on with Russia is going to impact the, the U.S. economy. It's just one more thing that's been thrown into the mix. Um, though I, I think we can all agree that the Fed is very late in starting a hike, uh, hiking cycle. And so I don't think there's anything that will stop it from raising rates a quarter of a point. Um, it would take something very major, let's say, to get it to not hike a quarter point. But then it could do what it said it's going to do, which is, um, you know, take it meeting by meeting, basically. And so if the Russia-Ukraine situation does become a bigger issue, then um, perhaps it goes slower. Um, if uh, things get resolved to some extent and are able to start worrying about other things, uh, then it can go faster. And so I think that'll become a bigger issue as we get closer to the meeting and as we listen to Powell. But, you know, obviously the near term one is still Russia, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But we should remind listeners that a quarter point rate hike is hardly anything coming off yeah. zero and rates will still be negative once yeah. you factor in inflation. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's long past the point when the Fed should have started raising rates. And so, Behind the curve is, I believe, the expression. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. So, all right, Lee asks whether we feel that keeping a lot of cash on hand and not buying the dips is the right course of action. That's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, so I try, 
I, I try to think about this in terms of uh, time horizons. Um, I was actually talking to my brother uh, about this uh, on vacation. Um, when I was with him and my parents. Um, but just that, you know, if you're if you're looking out, if this is money for retirement and you're looking out, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, um, putting money into the market um, consistently is um, is the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> It, it is the it, um, it, it's you know it's the market is almost always higher um, ten years down the road, um, and so the the ride might not be great, but you keep putting your money in. That being said, I'm a huge fan of cash. Um, I like cash partially as a buffer. I know people always talk about well, you own this to um, you know to tamp down volatility in your portfolio but you know what cash doesn't lose its its value except to inflation which we have a lot of right now which is always a problem with it but when you're in a volatile market cash can make you feel um a little bit better about your portfolio and it also does allow you to go into the market if you've been holding cash um during a big drop it does allow you to go in when you see opportunities um in the market and uh, you know if I, I i can't tell you if the market's next move is um up or down but i can also tell you that the market has dropped a lot and so putting money to work now is almost certainly better than it was uh you know 15 percent ago um so that's kind of how i like to think about it if you need the money in a year from now the market isn't the place to put it um but if you have longer time horizons um you know, if you have that that 10, 20 year, 30 year horizon, you just keep putting it in. And I think that's advice that any sensible financial advisor would give as well. That it does depend on your time horizon. But if your time horizon is long, keep it in the market. Right. So I want to circle back, Ben, before we sign off. We have the jobs report coming on Friday. This is the January jobs, excuse me, the February jobs data. And the Fed and the markets have been really watching this for signals as to how the economy is doing and how the unemployment rate is faring. What's the current consensus on Wall Street for the jobs report? Um, the, the, <clears throat> excuse me. The, uh, they're expecting 400,000 new jobs. Uh, it'll be down a little bit from 467,000 um, last month um, or in, uh, sorry, in January. Um, but it, it's still a very strong number. And, and this is, again, one of those things where I think unless it's um, really a blowout one way or the other, it probably doesn't change anything for the Fed. Um, it, the Fed has told us what it's going to do. Um, it's going to raise rates. Um, it's going to start trying to slow down the economy a bit. Um, these numbers, uh, you know, I think it would t take maybe a negative number to maybe get the Fed to rethink things. But I think that's unlikely. Most um, yes. You know, maybe if we get something like an 800,000 number on the upside, um, it starts talking about 50 again. Um, but but I, I, I do think that as long as it's within the ballpark of that 400,000, that uh, the Fed will just do what it told us it's going to do. Um, the unemployment rate is is at 4%. It's expected to fall to 3.9. And these are fairly low numbers. Um, and, and so I actually am not expecting a ton. Um, from this number, unless it's a really big surprise. It would be a relief to have a jobs report that doesn't get much attention. Yes, it would. I think the market would be happy, especially now. Anyway, we'll leave it there, Ben. Thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. 
We hope you can join us again tomorrow. Barron's associate editor, Eric Savitz, will speak with Dan Ives, technology analyst at Wedbush Securities on the outlook for large cap tech stocks. Should be a good call. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.